Hello, I'm Mike. I'm Mark. And this is TARDIS. We are transmitting, receiving, and receiving doctors in space. Jeez, I almost screwed up the title of the name. God damn it, Mike. <laughs> this is the Doctor Who podcast where we are covering every story of each doctor one by one in each cycle. Um, so this time we're covering the actual first episode of Doctor Who. Uh, a or not episodes, a first story of Doctor Who. And you got to remember that these classic Who stories are multiple episodes, and it's going to be different because I'm so used to the modern Who where it's just like one episode or two-parters or three-parters sometimes. It's just like, uh, that's why it took me so long to actually watch it because I was trying to (laughs) watch and just like think about it, take notes, and like, "Mm," and it's just something you need to get used to over time. So we're, so we're talking about a unearthly child, mm-hmm. and we took notes um, together, watching them, and we're gonna talk over them. I'm not gonna recap because Jesus Christ, four episodes is <laughs> uh, too much to talk about. Yeah. Um, is this your first uh, time you've seen these, Mike? So that's a good question, actually. Good thinking, because. I remember watching at least the first episode of an unearthly mm-hmm. child. I have, I think I've seen the others apart, but I have yet to fully watch them in a long time. So, I I I think for most of the classic who here are my either first time watches. This I remember vaguely. Okay. Very very vaguely. I'll briefly tell you how the story is. Just summarizing it. Sure. Uh, a unearthly, unearthly child introduces everything we know to, and love about Doctor Who. We get introduced to the Doctor. We get introduced to the TARDIS. We get introduced to the idea of a companion. The everything all about it. And what happens is that two teachers and the Doctor's granddaughter get back in time to Cayman times, and they have to basically escape out of there alive it's it's all in a nutshell basically and then there's yeah, this that's essentially it yeah yeah and then and then you have a side story of all about the cavemen and all the cave people <laughs> and oh my god it's oh man it you can tell this is a very early first episode story it gets better <laughs> over time but this is it's rough for me <laughs> it was rough yeah. for me to watch i'm yeah. like oh <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh my God! What's interesting is like the 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 cavemen subplot. Uh, the, the the first few drafts of this story, um, they didn't even have the cavemen talking. They were just grunting and just you know sort of making uh, untranslatable noises. And so I'm not sure how that episode would have flown at all, because at least w- with what we have, it's not television as we're used to seeing it obviously and it's you sort of have to force yourself to pay attention at times and care about what's happening but at least there's something to latch on to at least there are you know the, the, there are things to care about in these cavemen's lives you can i don't know what they were thinking before if even that wasn't there and so weird at this point <laughs> oh god okay uh, let's go through our notes. Sure. We'll go by each episode. We do An Unearthly Child. It starts off really great. It does. I, I, I think the opening shot is is fantastic, actually. Uh, we've, there's like, it's, it's a foggy London back alley. Um, and there's a, we, the camera follows a policeman who's just sort of walking his beat. And then the camera lingers on the door of a junkyard. I am Foreman's sort of like junkyard or scrap heap. And then for no reason at all yep. that we can determine, the doors open sort of by themselves. And then the TARDIS is inside. It's just um, for people watching at home for the very first time, all they see is a, a police telephone box, which actually would have been a pretty common sight in 1963. Um, the fact that it's in a junkyard might be a little weird, but but the but the the police box, as we know, the TARDIS is making this sort of humming noise, which is kind of eerie and is not, uh, and it's, it's sort of unsettling, and that of course is 
the first staple of this show that he, that the audience gets to see is the TARDIS itself, the means from getting from episode to episode and story to story. Right. Yeah. It was just I was like, wow, okay, that's where we're starting. That's good to go. Good to know. Yeah. Um and, it, and that's actually the only constant in the entire run of the show, of course, is the TARDIS. So I think it's actually quite fit. It's the first thing uh, of consequence that we see. Yes. Uh, throughout the rest of the episode, it just... Uh, Susan's interesting. I, I, so... It's... <laughs> first off, we get to recognize that Susan is the granddaughter of the doctor. Yes. That has so many questions for me because I don't remember Susan that much. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, grandfather, who is the doctor's family? How does Susan become part of the... Uh, Susan is, I guess maybe as we go further down this uh, track, I'll see what Susan's origins is or if they mention anything about Susan in general because I just think that the Doctor having a granddaughter is just a weird thing to put in. I understand that Doctor Who started off as like an educational kind of program, right. and it mm-hmm. and they're put, inputting Susan as like you know the typical like maybe teenage audience they're trying to go for or a kid audience. Like there's a kid involved, but outside of that, I don't understand Susan's um, point in this in the show. Yeah, if- I don't know how much I want to spoil for you or for our listeners, um, but if you're waiting for the show to explain what Susan's deal is, I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> um, the The truth is, from a production standpoint, Susan being the doctor's granddaughter makes perfect sense. If you have this sort of old man and a young girl traveling together in a you know in in the same vehicle, if you're going to avoid allegations or questions of uh you know inappropriate behavior that's an easy way out of that it's like oh well they're related he's his grandfather and um taught uh listening to the actress uh Kellen ford being interviewed about about this because lots of uh subsequent doctor who writers have had the same questions you had mike is like well then if if she's actually his granddaughter then who, where's his family what does this mean for for everything we know that follows and they've come up with all these weird fan theories about who Susan actually is, um, none of which have been uh, acknowledged in a show ever. Um, but, but listening to Carolyn Ford talk about it, especially in those days, she thought, no, that there was no talk of any of that. We thought that there was literally the doctor's grandfather was Susan. And that's all there was to it. We didn't give it any more thought than that. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. So yeah, she's a very weird student uh, attending school uh, in London in '63, yeah. and they spent so long at this location. Like even the, later in the episode, the doctor's like, "Well, we shouldn't have been here too long. We should just keep going and just hop around in time." But it's like, why? Mm-hmm. I guess it's trying to please the granddaughter just to be in the 20th century. I guess. Yeah, that's never really. That's never actually really explained as to why how they got there uh, in 1960s London in the first place and why sort of stayed. There's hints in this episode that they're on the run from something or someone, that they're exiled from somewhere. Uh, but that's the only hint we get. Um, it could just be that they're sick of running and they and you know they can blend in well enough on Earth. It's a good cover story for them. But yeah, it's not... Um, we don't know, and we will never know, actually. I don't think. I... From what I recall, I think they were talking about they were the last of their uh, kind. They don't say, you know, the terms that we know now, like Galfran or Gallifrey. Right. But so maybe something happened to Gallifrey, and that's why they had to, you know, get up and leave and travel. So um, Mm -hmm. that's interesting enough. They, um, Ian and Barbara. Ian and Barbara, yes, teachers, teachers. the teachers, they, I mean, this is 63. I mean, the 60s, I, I can understand why they're being so nosy about Susan. They're like, this is uh-huh. what a strange and weird student she is. It's like, and she, they bring up mm-hmm. several cases of, you know, situations they encounter with her. And it's just like, 
I mean, she's a alien. She's a, she looks like human, but she's not human. And yet, you know, there's a lot of things that she, she's smart, she's intelligent, but uh, we ra- later find out that she's not uh, not very helpful in certain ways. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she's like smart, and I can I appreciate that. And I've noticed actually uh, with her, you know, the way she acts, characteristics is actually almost autistic. Actually, to be honest. I've noticed. That's actually a really interesting take on, on Susan's character. Uh, I like that you brought that up because I had never actually considered that before. But it, but since you mentioned that, it, I can see that reading of, of her performance and, and of the character. That she's sort of like uh, ex- extremely brilliant in certain aspects of, 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 of you know, her education and of her life. But things that are common sense to everyone else sort of has gone right over her head and uh she doesn't really understand the the social niceties of the situation and yeah and she's having trouble fitting in yeah i i can definitely see that read now and i think that's a really interesting spin i don't know that anyone else has ever actually picked up on that i don't think so to be honest like and it's just yeah she's smart and outside of that like she's she doesn't know a lot else and doesn't mm-hmm. do and she'll like follow whoever you know tells her to do basically yeah it's all about the because i'm autistic just to say that on the open like that's okay. why i, I kind of noticed it because i i had the similar beats of like i'm smart in certain things you know she's smart in her certain fields and i'm certain smart in my fields i'm like we act the same way mm-hmm. with certain things like we get freaked out by little things like stuff that mm-hmm. happens and i'm like huh Susan, Susan could be on the spectrum for all we know, uh, okay. even though she's okay. not from Earth. So maybe somehow in other planets, there's, you know, autistic spectrums, I guess. It's interesting. And I thought, huh, that could be the case. But there's several, yeah. several things that happens like, you know, uh, uh, the, the book about French Revolution and she goes, uh-huh. that's not right. <laughs> like, like she knows what's gonna happen, uh, or she's experienced it. But apparently, you said that at the end of the season there would be a repeat trip to French Revolution for Susan. Yes, at the, at the end of season one, they actually go to the French Revolution itself in the story called "The Reign of Terror." So, um, and I don't know if they actually ever bring this up that Susan has been. I guess they do. They actually do bring. Uh, they, they do mention that it's one of the Doctor's favorite times in history. So apparently they have been there before. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm kind of curious about that then. Okay. <laughs> Maybe uh, if that lines up right. There's a lot of like stuff mm-hmm. that's like factual and actually well re- well written into the storyline with the, like, the, dude, uh, the decimal system when it comes to history. Yeah. 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 They actually... Uh, predicted that Britain would eventually go on the decimal system for currency, and they, and they did. In 1963, they weren't. They're still in the system uh, with shillings. So you would have 12 pennies to a shilling and 20 shillings to a pound, but I think uh, eight years or so after this episode aired, they did go to the decimal system the same as the U.S. does. So that, that line has aged pretty well, actually. That's, that's good. I was like, ooh, okay. <laughs> There's another line where, where Susan's in Ian's science class and she is having trouble solving a, what Ian thinks is a pretty simple problem because she thinks there's not enough uh, variables for the problem. Uh, she thinks that there needs to be five variables for this three-variable problem. Uh, and I can sort of, you know, I, I, I kind of wince when people call time the fourth dimension, but I usually allow it. But she calls the fifth dimension space which really <laughs> sort of uh, makes that sort of makes my eye twitch because the the first three dimensions, you know, length, width, and depth, those combined to make up space. Uh, we don't need an extra dimension for space as we understand it. It could be that the fifth dimension, as soon as expecting it to be here, is something else, and she doesn't really have a word for it that humans would understand, so she uses space. But I just. It did like the, the, that line the way it was written. It, she's like space. Yeah, <laughs> sounded like Kirk for a second, even though it's aired for Star Trek. <laughs> space. 
But yeah, when they actually, you know, it, well, the thing that I'm bearing the lead that if you have not seen these stories, these episodes, is that uh, Barbara and Ian follow Susan back to the junkyard to see where she lives. Yes. So, <laughs> and they and it's like okay, I, like I said, it's a sixties. I can understand the teachers are concerning about their student, but it's like it's kind of creepy. Just like, sure, let's just follow a under a minor student back to their home. Yes, and these days that, that we would say that they would have serious boundary issues if they were to actually do that. Um, but honestly, as you say, in the 1960s, um, I don't know how often this happened in real life, but apparently this sort of story was pretty common on television where uh, teachers or authority figures were concerned about a youth uh, in their, in their uh, supervision. And so they follow them home and typically they would find that they have massive problems at home. There was a single parent or, or there were drugs involved or something. That was actually a pretty common genre on TV, the social problem genre back then so that's probably what uh the unsuspecting populace at large who were watching this was expecting to happen but in but instead they got something else gotcha yeah i just i the wild time for me to figure out like i never ex like learned anything about the 60s besides the common history stuff so i don't know what the mm -hmm. living situations were especially in britain at that time but that leads to eventually, you know, them going inside. And he, Ian is the one that actually sees a police box and is just like, feel it. There's like a hum going on here. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. <laughs> and of course, we later discover that the TARDIS actually is alive. I think when Ian said that, he just meant, oh my gosh, it's plugged in. It's it's humming with electricity. Um which it shouldn't be in a junkyard, but the line actually carries more weight now than it did back then. True, yeah. Yeah, because TARDIS is, you know, essentially the main character, as you mentioned early on. It's just, yeah. it's just she becomes such a pivotal part to the Doctor, that thing. And we, and we mm -hmm. do find out eventually that it is a she in uh, uh, his eyes, which uh, should be interesting as it unfolds. Uh, so let me talk about Hartnell's portrayal of the doctor um yes because i've seen clips i've seen bits of pieces i've seen quotes i've seen the monologues that hartnell's done for the doctor and god yeah he is such a grandpa figure he is just so the attitude is like a grumpy Absolutely. grandpa and i'm like okay i'm starting to like his mm -hmm. you know attitude towards ian because ian is like oh like, mind you, the first two episodes here, Ian is, like, questioning everything, confused as hell, just like, what is going on? This can't be true. And it, it, it was, like, to the point where it was like, Ian, shut the fuck up. Just let the doctor do his thing and just shut up. And then Barb is fine. He's like, okay, this is nice. This is nice. Okay, I can believe this. But it's like, Ian, shut up. He does redeem himself eventually down at the end of the story no so i like so far like i i do love hartnell's portrayal of the doctor here i want to see how it continues on further into the the rest of the stories in his seasons i think the thing that stuck that sticks out about hartnell in these early episodes uh is that he's he's very impatient <laughs> yes <laughs> clearly um he's 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 very dismissive and he just he he a he doesn't want to be there <laughs> And B, he doesn't want anybody else to be there either. He just sort of wants to be left alone. Um, it's not the Doctor as we've come to know him, mostly at all. And yet, and yet, there are a few sort of glimmers of characteristics of the Doctor that we will recognize throughout. One of them actually happens here in this episode. I think it happens a couple times when Ian is like grilling him with questions trying to figure out what's going on. And the doctor just sort of like picks up a, he picks up like a piece of junk, a, a lamp or a clock or something. He's like, eh, this needs to be fixed. You know, he completely like gets distracted by something else. Um, I thought that was pretty funny. And that is recognizably the doctor. And there's a few more as this episode or as the story rather progresses, but I guess we can get there in due time. Yeah. Um, I, w I do want to mention that we do get like a good glimpse of interior within the first episode here. And it mm -hmm. is so simple, yet spacious. Like, yeah. I look around, it's like yeah. you see this, the iconic circles on the wall, and 
you see mm-hmm. and he's got furniture inside like there's chairs he does, there's yeah. a coat rack and i'm like oh okay uh-huh. it's very nice and then <laughs> and then you see the console for a bit with all the flips and switches and just like um, the console is very cool it is yeah. so neat i'm like oh that's that's nice that's a nice design mm-hmm. so the hat rack the hat rack sticks around i think throughout the entirety of the classic series uh and it's actually something i miss in the in the modern series TARDIS because I think there's one episode where David Tennant's running into the TARDIS and sort of flings his coat over the rail and I was like oh I missed the hat rack <laughs> that's so practical yeah uh, I will mention to our listeners is that I do have the the TARDIS manual ah so I've been scanning through the manual here and it actually shows really nice pictures of the of interiors and especially the first Doctor it's actually a colored photo in here actually it's pretty nice. Uh, okay. Um, that the TV monitor too to mention as well is pretty cool. This like a camera outside they see mm-hmm. outside as they travel through time. Um, yep. And he's got a clock in there too. Actually, it's got like a yes. Uh, yeah. But in the colored pictures, I could say gold. So it's a golden clock. Um, cool. So he stands by it like at one point, like. <laughs> Like you say, he's all distracted. He's like, I'm going to look at the clock over here. And just and Ian talks <laughs> to the doctor over there. I'm like, okay, you talk, Ian. <laughs> but yeah, this is where the, the typical, like, you know, the doctor has, has to explain everything to the two new people, especially the ex- explanation of the, yeah. of the TARDIS itself, what it is. Yes, Ian's so, so confused about that. Yes. Ian cannot fathom how it is bigger on the inside than the outside, which is fair. Um, but the way the doctor explains it, it's not really an explanation. Um, what he does is he says, well, you've discovered television, haven't you? You figured out how to, how to take a very large space and put it on a very small screen. This is exactly the same. And he, of course, is like, that's not the same thing at all. But the doctor just dismisses him and goes on. And uh, so what the doctor here, he sort of like frames the, the dimensions of the TARDIS in terms of just perception. Is he like, well, if you, you know, if you just uh, transmit it differently, you can, you can see it, you can see the whole thing, even though it's a big thing. And actually, the fourth Doctor, several years down the road, will sort of do the same thing with Leela when she asks the same question, how can a big space fit in a small space? And he basically says, here, hold this big thing, and now walk far away from it, it looks smaller. And Leela says, that doesn't, that doesn't help at all. And he says, well, that's all you're getting. So instead of trying to give any sort of scientific explanation, even gobbledygook, there's like, well, try this. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not going to explain anymore. Uh, yeah. Uh, watching all the first episodes of The Doctor is going to be interesting to see how they tell their companions what what's going on for each of their mm-hmm. stories. So um, I, I wasn't surprised that the figure in the inside has not been mentioned yet. So I want to see when that first pops up, which I don't remember right now, but that's the most common thing to say. Right. Oh, then then the doctor references like an example about the red Indian who sees this locomotive train and his savage mind. When Ian is, when Ian is like straining to understand everything, Ian's barely got hold of his sanity and the doctor makes a reference to, Oh, it's like when the red Indian and his savage mind couldn't comprehend what it like, like the, the white man's ships or, or gun or something. Um, and, and the red Indian just couldn't comprehend it. I was like, Oh dear. That's, um, that's another grandfatherly thing to say, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Grandpa, you can take a nap now. <laughs> right. Don't, don't mean to say no much, no more. Get out of here. Please. Oh my. Yeah. It's, oh God, updated so poorly. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, and it's also here that uh, right before the doctor kidnaps Ian and Barbara and takes off in the ship, Susan actually starts pleading with the doctor that she wants to stay. Um, and it's not clear whether she actually does or if she's just trying to uh, save Ian and Barbara from being kidnapped. But um, I think that that actually starts her her story arc of growing up and... N- feeling the need to be independent and possibly even leave her grandfather at some point that really starts right here with that, with that line where she says she wants to stay, even if he doesn't. Yeah. I mean, 
I feel like that would, I mean, that, Susan, I mean, she can leave for all I know. I'm going to say that right now. Um, <laughs> I uh, Spoiler for what we do at the end, but I don't like Susan that much. Mm-hmm. So leading into kind of the second episode, as we go through our notes here, um, this is where the TARDIS gets stuck as a police box. Yes. Yes. So they, the TARDIS lands and they walk outside and the doctor takes a look behind him and is surprised. And he says, it's still a police box. Why hasn't it changed? So that implies that up until then, the TARDIS had worked as as it was designed to was to blend into its environment and this is um to spoil something that happened over 50 years later uh, when ruth showed up in the most recent series with jody whittaker uh and it was eventually revealed that ruth was a incarnation of the doctor previous to william hartnell her tardis was also a police box and I find this very confusing. Either they just forgot about this, or they're gonna hand wave it away somehow with with some explanation. But um, I didn't like that. Is where I'm going with this. Yeah, uh, that's 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 the hot mess. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny because Ian is like, "Oh, what do you say, Doctor Foreman?" And he's like, "Doctor Who? Ah, what? Well, yes. What?" <laughs> the first title drop and <laughs> the first time we get a Doctor Who and it's from the Doctor himself. I think that's really funny. And does get mentioned again too. And I think uh, Ian says like, I don't know, who is he? This is Doctor Who. So it, it right. gets mentioned yep. twice in the same episode. And I was just like, that's pretty interesting. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, there are some great lines. There's some great exchanges and dialogue in here. Like it's the writing's good. Yes, Ian... He, of course, refuses to believe that they've gone back in time. Um, He says, time doesn't go round and round in circles. You can't get on and off whenever you like in the past or the future. And the doctor, in typical doctor fashion, just says, oh, really? Well, where does time go then? And he leaves it at that. He doesn't explain anything. Yeah. Yeah. It was so, he was like, oh, Grandpa Doctor knows what he's talking about. He, he, oh man, I just love the way he just, just lays it down for Ian to say, like, boom, there you go. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay, and we gotta talk about, okay, so they travel, like I said, they travel back to Cayman times, about like 10,000 BC or so. Let's talk about the cavemen, or the cave people, I should say, I don't want to sure. generalize. Uh, so, yeah, cavemen. so we have, so, once the TARDIS crew lands in the past, we then are, uh, the, the scene sort of shifts to the local cavemen in the area and their problems and what they're going through. And um, basically, there's the, the caveman leader is named Zah, and he is trying to make fire. His father was able to make fire and told Zah that he would pass on his secrets to him, but apparently never did. And everyone is waiting for Zah to make the fire so they can survive the winter. But he can't, and everyone's very disappointed. And that's when we join their story. Um, their speech patterns sort of are Shakespearean, which I guess you would expect from the BBC in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a little off-putting, and it's a little hard to get used to, and it's, it's a lot harder to, to swallow. But they, you do get some cute uh, word substitutions thrown in. Uh, so like they, they don't have a word for sun or 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 god. They sort of conflate the two and call it orb, the big orb in the sky. Yep. Uh, they don't have a word for ashes, so they say dead fire, yep. things like that. So yeah. I, I thought some of those were kind of cute, even if the the entirety of the cavemen speech is uh, not very easy to to sit with. Uh, my take on that, uh, it's just I, I'm fine. I was fine with that. Like I thought those were interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, stylistic choice with the the writing there with the cave people, and I was like, okay, I can dig this. I can I can imagine like watching a show with these with cave people talking like this. Like imagine like a movie with this, and it's like okay. And it, in this episode, this whole story to turn into a soap opera basically with these cave people, a prehistoric soap opera where it's all about the drama. It's like who's gonna be the leader? Who's gonna get the fire? And it's like, uh, okay, we're going through this. Right. 
<laughs> Can we just hurry the fuck up, please? Yeah. And there's there's a woman, and there's the woman's father who thinks who is going to give the woman away to the leader of the tribe, but now is thinking maybe you're not good enough to be the leader of the tribe. And there's an older woman who's just looking at everybody, going, "I can't believe this shit. What is happening?" It's <laughs> you're right. It's very soap opera esque. It's just like yeah, it's just so much drama within the tribe, and it's like, and then of course the the, the everyone gets involved somehow. It's just so weird. Well, the first thing I should probably say of the third episode is that the men- the first mention of Companion is featured. Um, they're trying to get out from oh, yes. cuffs as he gets, uh, you know, uh, kidnapped, basically. And then the Barbara's like, well, how, how are you not afraid of the shit? And it's like, the doctor's like, yeah, I'll fear. Fear is always the thing with me. That's all around us. And, you know, your Companion, Companion, uh, you know, I want to help out, and it's just like Ian mentions hope, and it's like, yeah, let's do it, and he gets so like helpful at this point, and I'm like, okay, that's it. That he pops up this early, you know, as a term within the show. Yeah, yeah. I think he says something like, "Fear makes companions of us all." Yeah. Yes, yes, that's what it was. Uh, they talk about what happens. It's like. They get kidnapped, and of course, the the old woman or old mother, you know, she's like all against fire. And yes, of course, Mark will probably yes. explain more about that. <laughs> so, there's another caveman, a sort of outsider caveman named named Cal, and he's the one who actually kidnaps the TARDIS crew. But Cal claims to also be able to make fire and that's sort of the one of the conflicts in the, the this caveman soap opera is between za and cal and who's actually going to make fire um but the old mother is the one who doesn't care and she actually thinks that fire is dangerous for the cavemen to have she thinks that the that um she thinks that fire will actually uh destroy them and so when the TARDIS crew gets there, and the Doctor claims that he can make fire. She's even, she's more scared about that. So what she has here, she basically has a fear and distrust of, not just of fire, but generally of progress and what we would call technology. And this is actually a very prevalent theme in sci-fi in the 50s and 60s. Uh, people weren't sure whether progress, you know, un- unfettered technological progress was a good thing or not. And when you consider that we had nuclear weapons at that point, we had the bomb, that's not uh, completely out of the question to to think about. Um, How far can we go before we're actually just going to destroy ourselves was a question a lot of people were asking back then. Uh, Watching Old Mother interact with the cavemen and with the TARDIS crew, that's what... That's sort of where my mind went. She's the... uh, the voice of, in, in certain sci-fi works, she would be the voice of reason. Uh, in others, she would be a, a hindrance to, to the protagonist. But you see her in a lot of sci-fi works from the time. Yeah, I, I just, that was a great point. Uh, great note on that. I was like, oh, that makes sense. Uh, really uh, progressive at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is just prehistoric. So, Barbara turns, you know, it's very Shakespearean, you know, with one of the cave women becoming, mm-hmm. basically being Lady Macbeth. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is Shakespearean, like you said. And it's like, I, 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 like, I, like I said, I don't mind the talking. I don't mind them acting out. But this is like, it is so in the 60s. It's, <laughs> I couldn't handle it. I'm like, can we get back to. The companions, can we get back to the doctor? Can they do something else besides have this? Like, it is so. Oh, I get so frustrated. It was just like, I'm getting bored here, people. Move on. Now, what, what we get here in this, in these uh, last three episodes uh, of, you know, the, the caveman episodes, um, basically is the old Doctor Who standard, or what becomes the Doctor Who standard of the, the capture and release and repeat. Yes. Right. Yes. The the doctor and companions are captured, and then they escape somehow, and then they're recaptured again, and that that's that's basically the cycle. That's how all Doctor Who, especially in the classic days, that's the engine that it runs on. Um, so the old mother lets 
the TARDIS crew go uh, because she doesn't want them to make fire for them. Uh, but then uh, Za sort of chases after them. And here, the so far unflappable Barbara, who has been a sort of very stoic and, you know, keep calm and carry on, mm-hmm. face of Britishness so far, she breaks down and she has a sort of screaming fit. And she tells, she tells Ian that she can't go on. And uh, they see a dead animal that she makes her scream. And that actually gives their position away that uh, Za knows where they are. Um, I had liked Barbara a lot up to that point, and I'm going to like Barbara a lot better after this, spoiler alert, uh, but for just for the purposes of this story, that moment sort of brought her down a notch for me. Yeah, I noticed that. I was going to write a note about that, but then you just wrote it perfectly. I was just like, yep. Like, she's like, Barbara, what are you doing? You're just screaming, just going crazy, just like Susan was. It's just like, uh, is this how, yes. how women are going to be written into this show just like you know the damsel in distress and screaming all the damn time and just like ah but but no it's it's redeemed later on like i said about it is yeah so it's actually redeemed pretty quickly mm-hmm. um she she gets a hold of herself uh za actually gets injured <laughs> yes um and and she actually goes to help him and she inspires ian and susan to go help him as well and that to me actually cements her position in the group as its its heart, its soul, its 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 human and moral center. Um, Ian actually said that you know, <laughs> at home I bet your apartment is full of stray cats and dogs. I thought that was really cute. Yeah, that was uh, that was the doctor. Meanwhile, um, through all this, uh, while all the companions are helping out, administering first aid, which is probably something he had never seen in his, his life. Um, he takes, he picks up Zaz's knife and puts it in his pocket. And fandom has sort of collectively decided that in that moment, the doctor was going to brain Zaw. He was, he, he was going to kill him. Um, that's not actually made clear here. Ian catches him putting the knife in his pocket and he calls him out. He says, hey, what, what are you doing with that? And the doctor lies. Um, he says, oh, I was just going to uh, uh, search for something. Uh, and, and Ian doesn't believe him. Yeah. But there's that moment of the doctors being very pragmatic and, and, and uh, basically self-serving. He, he sees a way out of the situation, and he's going to take it to save both his own skin and his granddaughter's. Yeah. And that's not really a trait of the doctor we're used to seeing. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I get definitely not a doctor of medicine, uh, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, Susan, yes, Susan just goes down a steep, steep downhill from here, just like, she's, yeah. she, I mean, she's following everyone's, you know, orders basically but she's not doing anything else outside of that just like yeah. Yeah. she had a real strong showing in episode one um but yeah it from 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 that point on yeah it's she's she's the one who screams the loudest and screams first <laughs> and she doesn't really she's she's pretty helpless especially in these two she does one cool thing in the in the very last episode of this story um, where she lights a skull on fire, and that gives the the group the idea of how yeah. they can escape for the, the final time. Yeah, and that's actually a pretty that cool. Was, moment. That was, and it's like it's almost alive. No, it's 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 almost dead. You know, that was that was, <laughs> that, was that was good. No, there was. Yeah. I mean, there was kind of a moment back in episode two where uh, she does jump and attack at the caveman as you know. To, you fight it up before they get captured the first time, but oh yeah, but yeah, Susan just just not uh yeah, not just throwing at that mm-hmm. not at all. Um, outside of I think the most Doctorish moment that uh, William Hartnell does in this whole story uh, comes in episode four, where um, Cal the other 
the other caveman who is vying for the position of leadership yes. in the tribe. He's actually been he's he's been in a pretty savvy move for a caveman. He's been framing both the TARDIS crew and Za, the other caveman, for everybody's woes. Um, and he says that, you know, uh, they the, the TARDIS crew is they killed old mother. Look, this this knife. They, they killed him with this very knife. But the doctor in typical doctor fashion, catches the bad guy out in his own lies, and he says, this knife has no blood on it. Yeah. How could Zah possibly have killed Old Mother if the knife has no blood on it? Nope. And it just turns around where, you know, Cal reveals that he, he did kill the Old Mother, and then yep. <laughs> the doctor just <laughs> runs up to Ian. He's like, follow my lead, follow my lead. And it's just like, drive... <laughs> Drive him out, drive him out, and then just, and the whole tribe just chants away and just takes Cal right out, just shoes him out. Yep, just like that. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, that was a cool doctor moment. Oh my gosh, that was so cool! Very cool, very cool. Yep. And then Ian gets a little moment to try to spread democracy and egalitarianism to <laughs> to a caveman tribe. Uh, he says, Cal is not stronger than the whole tribe, which is a great line, it is, and a fun maxim. Um, I'm not sure if the cavemen are progressed enough to be able to take that on board really but you know it's a good moral yeah i mean that does get mentioned i mean uh was just like talking about that i was just like huh i guess the concept is that the whole tribe does work better than one person from the tribe so mm -hmm. maybe you know afterwards they maybe Zah will take that knowledge and you know, they, of course, every time they try with their ten, there's knowledge and stuff and left behind. So maybe after the the TARDIS team mm -hmm. left, you know, Zod took that knowledge and it's like, yeah, our tribe's gonna be much stronger. Yeah, possibly. Uh, there is a fight scene in this. Oh my god, there's a fight scene in Doctor Who. What yes. is this? I'm like, I'm watching. Oh yeah, I'm watching this. I'm like, whoa, there's a caveman fight going on between Zod and Cal. <laughs> I'm like, and it's well choreographed and shot, and it's just. Oh, yeah, it, it's easily the funnest part of this entire serial. Yeah, I'm like, this breaks up the serial right up. I'm like, oh, I'm interested now. How, what's, how's this going to end? I want to know. Oh, <laughs> Cal dies. Awesome. Way to go, Zai. <laughs> so the, the reason that fight is, is so good looking compared to everything around it is because it was actually filmed before the rest of the serial. Filmed on film, I, I, I believe. And... The reason this is significant is you have to understand the way that episodes were made in the 60s and even into the 70s. They were basically shot as if they were live. Okay, so what the actors would do on a studio day, which is once every week, the, the actors would rehearse for four days and then record on one day. And that, that was the week. And on recording day, they would basically rehearse and set up everything for the entire morning and afternoon. And then in the evening, they would hit record and hopefully never stop recording. They would just run the entire episode front to back and then cut. And they would hopefully cut on time so they wouldn't have to pay any of the workers overtime. Then, now what this means for, for Doctor Who and stories at the time is that you don't get to you know, cut most of the time. If you do, there's usually one planned recording break when they'd actually yell cut in the middle of the episode. Other than that, they would only ever try to yell cut if there was a serious technical error. A light wouldn't turn on or a microphone wasn't catching sound or whatever. Actors never got the benefit of being called cut for. If you forgot your line, you had to keep going. Right? right. So if we talk about why Doctor Who looks so cheap, why, you know, you know why it why it's mostly just people talking in rooms and not much happening. That's why. It's because um, they, basically, it, it, they were basically filming a play, a play on a soundstage with a couple different sets. And so the reason this fight looks so cool is because there's so many cuts and edits, which is something you can do if you film something on film and, and ahead of time and actually have some time to edit it down. All right. All right. Uh, I did actually find a note about this. Actually, uh, there's a commentary and um, where is Hasten said about the fight? You're well, saying, yeah. Yes. Uh, said that it was, the, like you said, the first thing they recorded 
and that they had to find a way to link this pre-recorded footage to the rest of the episode during the actual studio recording. The reactions of the mm-hmm. four cast members to this fight were also shot during this pre-production stage. Okay. So, yeah, so that seems about... So yeah, so right. that means... So, so when they're doing pre-filming, that would mean that they would also have the regular actors you know, in makeup and costume and everything just so they could uh, film their reaction shots and then cut them in, yeah. And yeah, yeah. And then part of the production, like you said, uh, when it came to that part in the episode, they would literally just play it through the 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 feed live. So the the production crew watching the you know they would get that part of the episode where the film would start. Then they would start the film, let it play. And then as soon as it was done, the action would resume. So they didn't even really cut the action for the actors' benefit or the crew benefit for the filmed in series. Had to wait until it was done and then keep going. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, the good news is that the ending is happy, where they, the crew, actually escapes. But the thing is that yes, they don't they really do. solve anything. They just escape and <laughs> just run away, which is yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, Doctor Who is always about running, so I guess that kind of makes sense. But but <laughs> yeah, usually there's a solve. You know, in every episode, you know, that the doctor has to solve yeah. something. The doctor comes to a comes to a place or comes to a plan. There's a problem, and he solves it, right? And then and then he leaves. That's the that's your typical Doctor Who setup. Uh, the problem here is that uh, they're just not supposed to be there, <laughs> right? And I, yeah, I think I think later on it's revealed that the TARDIS guides the doctor to a place that needs help and needs mm-hmm. to be solved. So th- for this set of episodes you know the doctor actually tinkers around with the, the console and then goes back in time i don't think the tardis had the purpose of like thinking oh let's send them back in time and get captured by cavemen no no it's the doctor i don't doing, think so and he kept apologizing apologizing to them it's like oh it's all my fault it's all my fault it seems like no 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 grandfather don't say that like and it's the doctor's fault, to be honest, but um, Susan, don't, <laughs> don't be like so, like, uh, Susan. No. And then yeah. we get the start of Ian and Barbara's arc uh, in that the doctor says he can't return them to, to their own time, to London. Um, and not for the excuse he gave them in the first episode where he's afraid that they'll tell people about him, um, but rather he actually, he says he literally can't um, because they left too quickly and for some reason, that means that he can't program the TARDIS to bring them back to where they were. Um, I don't think that excuse holds a lot of water, especially bearing in mind the the, uh, the serial two stories from now. Uh, but basically, so Ian and Barbara are there, and all they want to do is get home. Uh, but until they do, they're on board for more adventures with the Doctor and his granddaughter. Yep. Uh, <laughs> like a quantum leap thing. It's like we gotta go home, but we keep landing in random places. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh. Yeah, that's the um what we took for notes, please. And I wanted to, to mention those. I, however, will pr- bring up some interesting notes that I saw on the Wikipedia page actually about the episode. Okay. Uh, there was a few that I've noticed. Um. One of them I read was that a lizard was actually brought to the set for the the forest scenes, and so Carol oh, really? Carol actually took that lizard and took it home. Okay, just random, she got a pet lizard like, out of it. Pet pet lizard <laughs> out of it. Like there you go. Okay, this is my favorite note I've seen. Um, so one of the actresses hired to play a cave woman misunderstood her part. She thought she was going to model furs for for Doctor No, the first James Bond film. Rather regs. <laughs> when she learned she was half she would have to blacken her teeth, she stormed off the set and never returned. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was like, oh that's, that's phenomenal. That's that's that was funny. Uh because it, it it's it's <laughs> weird how both both like for Britain, like both these f- massive franchises, you know, Doc- James Bond mm-hmm. being Doctor Who uh, Doctor No. God, Doctor Who, Doctor No, God, that's a weird <laughs> Don't get confused. Oh my God. Yeah, Dr. No comes out the year before. 
And then Doctor Who comes right. the year after, and it's like, yeah, they're still going strong 50 years later. Almost 60 years later. Yeah. Like, it's it's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. I just love that. Uh, there was some, like, script stuff I saw. There was a lot about how the interaction between Ian and Barbara was turned down because they're so aggressive about it. It was like when they walked into the staff room, they like, I want to break some windows. And they just toned that down a little further down. And it's like, yeah, they're not going to be that harsh in the episode. And okay. <laughs> and also they, uh, Barbara and Ian were wrote more romantically together and they toned that down. And mm. so, I mean, mm. I mean, I kind of felt that romantic tension between them, but it's just like, it wasn't like yeah. that much uh, hammered in. So, Yeah. They will definitely play with that moving forward from time to time, but it's never going to be addressed explicitly. I think I'm. I think it's safe to say that. Okay. Um, I mean, they do have good chemistry at least. So. Uh, oh yeah. Um, definitely. No, and of course, I think the last thing I'll mention uh, is the actors playing the cave people complained that their costumes were flea ridden, so they had fleas in them. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not the best of working conditions. No, especially in the late 60s. There was something. Hold on. I want to look at There's something about the. Is this aired um, when JFK was assassinated? Yes, the next day. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll look at that up. What was that about? Uh, due to the original airing being overshadowed by the news of the JFK assassination the previous day on, the, on Wednesday. November 27th, the program review board decided to repeat a unearthly child immediately before the cave of skulls. This repeat was not shown on BBC One North Ireland and gained a significant number of viewers, 6 million. Although each replays are common today, particularly on American Hour, such a rerun was never unheard of in 1963. That's true. Yes, back in those days, the, the, particularly in the UK, the BBC almost never repeated anything. And that's one of the reasons why there were so many episodes that went missing. Because um, the, the attitude at the time was, you know, you air something once and then you never have to air it again. I mean, you, you can just get rid of it. TV was a very ephemeral thing. It was a very temporary thing. So the fact that it was repeated is actually kind of a big deal. And the fact that Doctor Who got a whole program of reruns in, I think, 1980 or 1981, where they would do, where they, I think they reran four different stories across four different Doctors. That was a very big deal. That was, it wasn't unprecedented, but it was a very big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's all I'll do in each episode is bring some random fun facts about these stories. Cool. Moving forward. Um, so what we, what we do at the end of these episodes is we rank things. So it's going to be different than most podcasts where we do ratings, but this time we're ranking stuff. As this is the first episode, we don't have anything else to rank against it. So, so far, the, the story and the episodes are staying put until the next episode where we have to outrank each other against the second one. Um, right. So, there's a couple of things we have to rank together. Uh, the things that popped up in this uh, story. Among the things is, obviously, the companions. And, right. And I here we go. And I did not write you my rankings of companions. You <laughs> did want that. This is gonna be a surprise. No, I wanted to keep <laughs> it a little secretive. Um Okay. And I thought okay. and like and you could tell probably tell as you heard me talk about the, the story. There's some things I was talking about with the companions. For for me, there's three companions, and I for a while I was considering going Susan is a companion, because of course it's the granddaughter, but of course it makes sense. She's the companion with Ian and Barbara, yeah. it makes sense. My mind was just like, I was second-guessing for a second. But so, here's what I'm saying. Okay. It's, for me, for the three, I'm ranking it Ian, Barbara, and then Susan. So Ian is your number one, Barbara is number two, two Susan is three. three. That's the exact order they should be for now. That is my exact rank, believe it or not. Oh my god. Oh, right. Yes. Wow, we don't have to argue <laughs> about anything yet. Wow. <laughs> I Now, I will, with the caveat that uh, my ranking is based solely on this story and not what I know will follow. Exactly. 
Um, That's good. Yes. Good. With the evidence only in front of me for these first four episodes, um, Ian actually is my favorite one. He gets the most to do. Mm-hmm. I think he actually changes the most from beginning to end. And he's definitely the most useful. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Ian becomes almost like the second eater of the crew, though. There's one point where uh, Zao is like, uh, <laughs> there's a conversation going on, and is like, his name is Friend. He's a friend. He's, his name is Friend. And he's like, <laughs> are you named Friend? He's like, yes, I'm Friend. Uh, are you the leader? No, he's the leader. Pointing to the doctor. Yes, yes. So, because I mean, the the back and forth between Ian and the Doctor throughout these episodes are like top notch, and Ian, you know, yeah, eventually he realizes what the Doctor somewhat is, you know, and he respects him as leader for the most part. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all right, wow, I'm actually kind of surprised we actually thought of the um, exact same. Uh, <laughs> I don't actually think it's that arguable for this episode. That's true. Um, true. I guess we. We could quibble over Barbara, but as I said, she doesn't get a lot to do in this story, despite the fact that they're in history and that is, and she's a history teacher, but right. she doesn't get any sort of like expository lines. Yeah. I mean, she does like say a few things, you know, and does help out in certain ways. But other than that, like Barbara is just very standard. And Susan, as I kept saying over and over, <laughs> is that like, she just, she starts off strong and, you know, displaying herself perfectly, you know, but then she's just mm-hmm. like, doesn't do jack shit. Susan. You right. Gotta do something. Yeah. Susan is fantastic in the very first episode. In the episode called An Unearthly Child, Susan is great. But come episode two and every episode after that, she is almost unwatchable, if you ask me. Yeah, unwatchable indeed. Uh, there weren't any else that popped up for us to rank yet. The, I mean... There's no allies. There's no right monster of the week. Uh, there's no. I mean, the Cayman don't have a lot of. Uh, they're historical figures, but they're not really like. We don't know. <laughs> I mean, in the next episode, for at least the. Well, actually, no. Is the uh, we'll find out next time uh, if there's any historical figures. Maybe I have not looked ahead, so I don't know. I'm keeping myself surprised for the next episode for. Dr. Troughton's doctor, the second doctor. Uh, we mm-hmm. can't rank the TARDIS designs yet. And I don't think it changes much between doctors yet. I don't know. Not a whole lot. There are a few superficial changes are. Uh, between seasons one and four, but it's it's not a lot. And probably not even, And I mean, if we're doing the animated episodes of Power of the Daleks, there's, I don't even know if that's applicable. Ooh, yeah, you're right about that. That's right, because we're going to get into those uh, animated episodes. Uh, the ones that are missing, and um, there's no major Doctor Tech to even rank either. Uh, no, I, I, I had this, I had this memory of the Doctor having uh everlasting matches or matches that never went out, but that did come up in the story, and I think I may have just picked that up from a novelization, either of this one or of the Daleks. Well, that could be. Uh, yeah, the doctor yeah. was smoking in one scene. Never. Yes, the doctor lit up a pipe in, I think, episode two, and I think that's the first and only time he does. Yeah, I'm like, oh, he he's a smoker. Okay, <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, and like I said, the story will be on hold. So yeah, uh, that's all we need to do for this episode. Pretty simple, actually, to start. Not bad at okay. all. Um, let's just talk about our overall thoughts on the story, like. Well, did you like the story? That's my question. I I kind of love episode one. I think episode one is weird and unexpected, and it's it definitely very moody. There, you know, there are some things you can take issue with, like the behavior of the teachers. But right. <laughs> but I think, but but I think that it's it very effectively sets this show and the character of the Doctor up as this sort of dangerous mysterious thing that that is unknowable which is something that the the series loses eventually but as a fr- coming into the show i think it's actually very refreshing um overall i think the big problem with with this first story is episodes two through four um <laughs> 
<laughs> and, you know, I, I don't hate it. Um, I think there's enough to keep you interested. I think it actually moves faster than other four-parters throughout the show's run. But it's nothing to write home about, and I would probably stick it near, probably near the top of the lower tier of my, of my Doctor Who story rankings. Okay, yeah, I... I I struggled through this. I pushed the peek behind the curtain here for folks. I pushed this recording back a couple of times because I couldn't manage to finish watching the damn thing. I had to stop a few times just to be like, I gotta finish this. I gotta finish this. I have to finish this. But it's like, it just took me a while to watch through it because it's it's not the level of cringeworthiness. I mean, it's the 60s. I need to understand that it's the 60s. It's the time of the period. I need to, I mean, I'm not like a typical millennial that's like, Oh, black and white. I don't understand the black and white media. It's like, I can watch black and white stuff fine, but it's just like, it's a different time era, and the acting is very, like, oh, very cheesy and very, I wouldn't say bad. It's good at the time. It's very of its time. Yeah. So, I yeah, the first episode, great. It's a great introduction. Great things to introduce everything about it. Um, There's some bits and pieces throughout the next episodes that kind of explain things but you don't really need to watch all of it to see everything i mean there's the key quotes and key uh scenes to watch but like i don't care about the caveman stuff i don't <laughs> you can skip that subplot altogether you could just score through all that for all i know but yeah uh i can i can respect it as the first episode of doctor who but outside of that i would not come back to watch this again ever i mean be honest so yeah i respect that i think anybody out there um looking for a sort of fast track of of classic coup just wants to like watch the important stuff you should obviously watch the very first episode but i don't think you need to watch the remainder of this story at all i think you can stop after episode one yeah i think, I think so too um yeah that's that's the show mark my this is the first episode of tardis so all right that's awesome. And so next time, uh, we are regenerating to another Doctor, uh, which is going to be interesting. Going from right. the first to the second, uh, we are going to check out Patrick Troughton as the second Doctor um, and see how that goes as we check out the power of the dialects. Um, Can't wait. And it's, it's a missing episode, but thank God they animated it. So we're going to watch the animated version. Um, and I'll see how that goes. I, I'm actually kind of, I was, I was curious about these, uh, animated episodes. I'm like, Ooh, I want to see how the animation is. It's probably going to be not high quality animation, but you know what? It'll work. <laughs> I haven't seen the powers of the Dalek animation yet. I've seen some of the animations and some of them are better than others. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yes. Um, Great. Thanks for listening. Uh, here's the things you need to know if you want to follow us into the future or the past of the Tardis. Uh, you can always follow the, the Twitter account, which I'm tweeting Doctor Who stuff a lot and tweeting episodes at, which is at Transmit Tardis on Twitter. Um, give it a follow. I'll, you know, tweet Doctor Who stuff. I'll, you know, this, that, and the other things doing outside of the podcast, which... After this, I'm gonna hop right back to New Who. I'm gonna actually gonna a uh, little experiment I'm gonna do is actually watch New Who through the eyes of River Song. So, uh, oh, watching through her birth, through baby, through the end of her adventure. So, uh, that'll be cool. It's interesting. Uh, I need to cleanse my eyes from what I've seen, basically, and see something <laughs> refreshing, dear lord um yeah if you want to follow me personally you can follow me on social media on twitter and instagram at mike mixtape i tweet random stuff here and there check that out for sure this podcast is part of my own podcast network called project mixcast uh i host on anchor anchor is a great podcast site that distributes to all your favorite podcast platforms if you like apple it's on apple if it's on spotify it's on spotify check it out listen to it Give the support you can give for this network here as I produce a lot of podcasts, including this one here. And if you want to, you know, 
Source it. Uh, Anchor.fm slash Project Mixcast is probably the place to go and find your favorite podcast platform. And I know Mark don't have social media. My Instagram, I've heard. I actually do have Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram, where my handle is the Mark of Mandragora. Uh, and I do Doctor Who, Star Trek, and Star Wars reviews as often as I can. I also sometimes post about comic books and pattern awards and you sometimes pictures of my son. If you want to look at those. All right, awesome. And with that, we'll see you next time when we take the TARDIS for a ride. So long. Oh.